You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We started looking at this passage last week and thinking about the question, what is worship? What is worship? And uh, I point you to the uh, back of the bulletin again uh, for our prayer, uh, the personnel committee, remembering them as uh, we're searching for a minister of worship. You have their names listed there as well that uh, I hope that you will pray for them individually. Uh, But it's good for us to think about this uh, topic. It is an important topic. One, I think, could argue uh, rightly that worship is the theme of the Scriptures. Uh, It's certainly the theme of eternity. All of of history is moving towards uh, that great and and climactic day when God will gather His people to Himself and we will worship Him for all of eternity. And uh, if, if He is worthy of worship then, He is worthy of worship now. Amen? And uh, therefore, we need to know and understand what it means to worship Him and what He desires from us in worship. And uh, to do that, we look to His Word. Isaiah 6 is a good text for us to think about these things. And uh, we began it last week. We continue our study of it today. Let's begin reading in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the time we get to share together today, and we pray now for ears to hear your word. And I pray that you would use me as your servant. I, I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and, and your word would go forth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we looked at verses 1 through 3 last week and, and we determined that worship begins with the revelation of God. Uh, He is the center. He is the focus. He is the object of our worship. And I shared with you a definition of of worship by John Stott, and uh, it read like this, all true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture and arises from our reflection on who He is and what He has done. The worship of God is evoked, informed, inspired by the vision of God. The true knowledge of God will always lead us to worship. And you notice it's it's a great definition. It's helpful. It's reminding us that worship does not begin with music. It does not begin with a mood. 
Uh, it begins with a revelation of God. Where uh, is God revealed to us, we might ask? Well, He's revealed to us in His Word. And that has huge implications for how we think about worship today. It means that worship and the Word of God are inseparable. They're tied together. The Word, the truth of God, is a prerequisite for biblical worship. This has, again, a lot of implications. It it means that it matters the content of the songs that we sing, that that the content of those songs must be biblical, must be sound theologically. Uh, It also means that, that preaching, the systematic teaching of God's Word is a central part of our worship. John Stott, again, in a different book, uh, a book named Between Two Worlds, he adds this, Word and worship belong to each other. All worship is an intelligent and loving response to the revelation of God because it is the adoration of His name. Therefore, acceptable worship is impossible without preaching. For preaching is making known the name of the Lord, and worship is praising the name of the Lord made known. Far from being an alien intrusion into worship, the reading and preaching of the Word are actually indispensable to it. The two cannot be divorced. He goes on to say, it's their unnatural divorce, that divorce of Word and worship, which accounts for the low level of so much worship today. Our worship is poor because our knowledge of God is poor. And our knowledge of God is poor because our preaching is poor. Don't amen that point. But, but when the Word of God is expounded, he writes, continuing the quote, when the Word of God is expounded in its fullness and the congregation begins to glimpse the glory of the living God, they bow down in solemn awe and joyful wonder before His throne. It is preaching that accomplishes this. The proclamation of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. That's why preaching is unique and irreplaceable. That's exactly what the testimony of what we read in the New Testament, is it? You think about the word in worship. We read the early church, Acts 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, it says. Uh, it's why Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, young pastor Timothy. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you follow. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. He, then he continues, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Again, truth is always at the heart of authentic biblical worship uh, because that's how and where God reveals Himself to us. One more, Paul wrote in Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the Word of Christ, the Word of Christ, dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Notice in that verse, leave it up there for just a moment, that it's the prominence of the Word that leads to worship, doesn't it? It's, it's, and notice there's a blend. There's emotions. These emotions that we have in worship are good and from our Creator, but they are regulated by understanding. Enthusiasm is is directed by the Word of God. It's not an anything goes. MacArthur puts it like this, Worship is not a good feeling apart from any comprehension of the truth. Worship is an expression of praise from the heart. 
toward a God who is understood as He is truly revealed. The person who would worship God must therefore have a faithful commitment to the Word of God. Worship does not happen by a zap out of heaven that makes us fall down. It's the overflow. Worship is the overflow of our understanding of God as He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures. You see the pattern. It's over and over again. Word and worship, revelation of God, response of God's people. That's at the heart, the essence of worship. So that's the first element of biblical worship. I needed to say all that because I didn't have time to say it all last week. It's actually the ending of last week's sermon. Um, Maybe we should sing again. No. but, but it's important that we remind ourselves again, that's where it starts. So let's think about now the response part of this. The response part of this. I want you to think of it uh, in, in this kind of, of light. I, I, 25 years ago, again, when some of these worship wars started, George Hunter wrote a book, um, and the book was called Church for the Unchurched. Church for the Unchurched. And he suggested in that book that, that a thriving church um, must have a celebrative worship, a celebrative worship. And he gave two reasons for it. Um, the first reason was to provide a celebration by which pre-Christians can relate and find meaning. That's the first reason, so that pre-Christians can relate and find meaning. The second reason to have a celebrative worship service was what he calls uh, to remove what he called the cringe factor by providing a worship service that people feel comfortable in and they really love and want to invite their lost friends to. So just think about that for a moment because there's definitions like these that have profound impacts on churches and how they think about worship. Worship, he says, must be a celebration. It has to be upbeat, has to be celebratory, fun, and we do that for the sake of pre-Christian people, lost people, if you will. And and then secondly, we have to strive to remove from our worship anything that might cause people to cringe, or in other words, call people to be uncomfortable in any way. Now, Now think of that. Do you hear anything in that definition of worship about the glory and greatness of God as to why we've come to worship? Did you hear anything? Are you awake? No, no, there wasn't nothing there, was it? Now, let's be clear. There's a place for celebration in the worship of God. Amen? That's part of why we've come today to celebrate. There's an element of gladness that we have in our hearts, but it's not a gladness uh, for lost people, though we're glad that you're here, but that's not really the, the root of our gladness. Our gladness is in God, isn't it? You think about Psalm 100. What does it say? Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. You can hear the gladness, right? Serve the Lord with gladness, it says. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. It's He who made us. We are His. We are His people. We're the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving, His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. There's a lot of gladness in that psalm, isn't there? And it describes how we come to worship. But, but this celebrative component of our worship is because of the greatness of God. Now, I think we would all agree, too, in, in point to Hunter's uh, point, that we, we don't want anyone to cringe unnecessarily when they come to our, our gathering today, right? Um, 
especially if they cringe because the building is unclean or, or that it's uh, in disrepair of some time. And we don't want people to cringe because we had bad music. I mean, there's nothing like when a music leader sings off-key, right, and makes you want to crawl under the pew. Uh, or, or when uh, the preacher chases rabbits or he's back on his soapbox again for the third week in a row and he's unprepared and all these things. We don't want people to cringe over things like that. But let's be very honest and biblical about this. A part of biblical worship is that it is uncomfortable. And it should be. It should be. We see it here in Isaiah 6, don't we? It's very plain. God is revealing Himself to Isaiah in all of His sovereignty and holiness and glory. And we read in verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And what did Isaiah do? How did he respond? Verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Talk about being uncomfortable. You and I, we, we are unlikely to have a vision of God, at least in this life, like Isaiah did here in the temple, but, but nevertheless, you understand that we're worshiping the same God that He worshiped. He has not changed. And, and therefore, it seems that we should share something of Isaiah's response when we come to worship. And so, let's think about his response here for a moment. I want you to see it in a couple of, couple of different angles. One is the, the attitude of it, and the other is the action of it. So, first we see the attitude, which is the conviction of sin. Woe is me, for I am lost, Isaiah said. When, when he encountered God... In all of His holiness, there was immediate conviction of sin in His life. He was immediately made to be uncomfortable because of His sin. In the flow of, of Isaiah's message here, it's, it's fascinating to me how this came about. Isaiah, of course, was the, a prophet of God, sent with God's uh, message to the Israel's southern kingdom, which was Judah. And if you flip over the page in chapter 5, he's getting going in his prophetic message. He is announcing judgment upon his nation. He's using, if you notice the word woe, W-O-E, woe, he repeatedly uses that word uh, to offer uh, or to refer to God's judgment on them. The word woe means cursing. It means woe to you. May judgment be upon you. May curses be upon you because of your sin against God. There's six of them. Chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Woe to those who join house to house, who had field to field until there's no more room. He's, he's cursing them there in that little paragraph for their aggressive greed. They've, they've forgotten their God. Uh, verse 11, there's another one. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. 
who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see, his, see the work of His hands. Woe, Isaiah says, judgment be upon you for not regarding the deeds of the Lord, living for yourselves with no fear of God. Verse 18, there's another one. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. In other words, they're mocking God. They're, they're living their lives as if there is no God. They're, they're questioning, they're challenging, they're defying God. Verse 20, there's another one. Woe to those who call evil good and, and good evil. May, may the judgment of God, Isaiah says, fall on those who are redefining the truth justifying their sins, calling evil things good and good things evil. Woe! Verse 21, the sixth one, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Each of these woes describe a sin pattern on the part of the people of God, resulting in the judgment of God. And Isaiah is warning them. He's pronouncing them as a prophet of God, judgment upon them. Here, Isaiah is, is probably the godliest man in the land. He is a true servant of God, a messenger, a prophet of God. But then we come to chapter 6. And Isaiah sees the holiness of God, and we're shocked to hear that suddenly, in the presence of God, he pronounces a woe on himself. Woe is me, he says. In light of God's perfect holiness, Isaiah becomes convicted of his own sinfulness, recognizing that he too justly faced the judgment of God. He says, for I am lost. Talk about being made to feel uncomfortable. In the, in the presence of God, Isaiah uh, is undone, some of your translations have. He's ruined in the presence of God. It means being lost, being annihilated, being destroyed. He's devastated by the holiness of God. I want to reiterate again that I do think the Scripture calls us to gladness and joy in our, our worship, and, and rightly so, especially when God is your Father. Amen? There's joy in this. But there's also this sense in the Bible that if we have not come face to face with our sin as individuals and, and as a congregation, that we have not considered or worshiped this holy God. How could it be otherwise, friend? If God is so holy that even Isaiah is undone himself, how is it that we are not left at least somewhat troubled by our own sins when we come to worship Him? And yet so often this is the case. So often we approach worship too casually. And I, I mean... We approach God too casually. Sometimes we come to worship Him without much thought of Him at all. 
without giving consideration of this at all. We come without any sense of His holiness. We come flippant about our own sinfulness, ready perhaps to announce woes on everyone else but ourselves, not mindful of the fact that it's only by His mercy and grace that you're taking your next breath even now. We've lost that sense of the fear of God in our worship. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 exhorts us, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Here's acceptable worship. With reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, it seems to me that we have much greater things to be concerned about than the style of music when we come to church. A true worshiper comes into the presence of God with reverence and awe, with both this sense of the majesty of God, but also of the fear of God, because He's a holy God. And to be honest, the last thing we want to manufacture or create in a a gathering of worship is comfort for sinners. What could be more unloving and devastating that that we would try to make people comfortable in their sins? It's it's why our worship services should, should not resemble, in my estimation, a concert at the state fair. But, but rather something different, something that speaks of more weightiness because we are worshiping a holy God, the sovereign of the universe. So it should look different. This is, by the way, not just an Old Testament revelation of God. When people met Jesus and understood he, who He was, the Son of God, the normal reaction was always fear and reverence. Always. After Jesus stilled the storm, the Bible says that the disciples, Mark 4, 41, were filled, filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were afraid of the storm, but when they recognized that Jesus, that God was in the boat with him, they were filled with an even greater fear. When Jesus cast the demons out of legion and they went into the pigs, remember, and they ran off the cliff, and the townspeople showed up to investigate. When they found out about the miracle, they wanted Jesus to leave because they were afraid. They came to Jesus. They saw the demon-possessed man, who one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. When the woman with the issue of blood came up from Jesus from behind, you remember, and touched his, his uh, tassel of his garment there and, and was healed. Mark 5.33 says that she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Why? Because she recognized she was a sinner in the presence of God. Luke 5, Jesus demonstrated Uh, his deity by that miraculous catch of fish. And when Simon Peter saw it, 
He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's always the response of the people, of the revelation of God, immediately aware of their sinfulness in the light and presence of God's holiness. Church, when, when we come to worship, there should be some sense of attitude of the conviction of sin, of reverence and awe and the fear of God when we gather. It should also lead us to action, which we would just call the confession of sin, to confess our sins. Isaiah continues, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It's a remarkable confession. Remember, his, he's the prophet. It's his words that he's using, speaking for God, and yet he specifically acknowledges the corruption of his own tongue. This is the very instrument of his prophetic ministry, and he feels corruption for God's people as well. As he stands in the presence of God, he sees himself as God sees him, and he confesses his sin before God. True worship takes place among the people of God when we when we come to see our sinfulness as God sees it and confess them before God. No one can enter into communion with a holy God without acknowledging and confessing their sin. This confession, notice, is both individual and corporate. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. There's the individual. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. There's an individual, there's a corporate, we're confessing our sins, obviously, throughout the week, constantly reminding ourselves of the holiness of God that, that we live for every, every day and His call on us to be holy. But when we come together, there's also a particular expression. There's a, there's a corporate confession before God. We don't always do this formally in our services, but there always should be a sense of it when we come together. Sometimes it may come through a song. Maybe a song that we sing prompts you to confess your sins before God. Maybe other times it may be a prayer. I've been convicted many times when someone is praying and confessing sin and thinking, oh, me, that's me too, and it leads me to confess sins. Certainly there ought to be something in the sermon of the, when the Word of God that is proclaimed that should, that should cause you conviction in you and and lead you to confess your sins before God. Psalm 51 is a great model for this. In both attitude and action, David prays, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin." For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. There's genuine, heartfelt. This is not a half-hearted apology, is it? There's a sense of brokenness and contrition and confession of sin. So when we think about what is worship, what does that mean? We understand it begins with the revelation of, of who God is, but that should, flowing from that, should be the confession of sin, right? 
And so think about what this means. Again, most of the time when we're, people are talking about worship, we think of formal activities. We, we, we think of the form of worship, or we think of the style of worship, or the activities of the worship. I've heard this many times. You know, you have the worship, and then you have the preaching, right? The, music, the, the worship is often synonymous with, with music. But understand, worship is primarily, at first, not about any of those external activities. Worship is first what takes place in our hearts when we think about God. When we understand, encounter Him, when we adore Him, when we consider our place before Him, when we confess our sins to Him, worship is something that we do, but it's something that we do in our hearts first, church. It's something that takes place here, and and then flowing from that are often activities of singing and praying and giving and and preaching, and going, and all sorts of of ways, serving. Hear this. That's why, again, to quote uh, uh, MacArthur, I think he's correct when he says, true worship cannot be stimulated by gimmickry, entertainment, or emotional manipulation. Those things might draw crowds, but they don't have anything to do with authentic worship. In fact, They are usually a detriment to it, he says. He goes on, music and liturgy can perhaps assist or express a worshiping heart. That is true. But they cannot make a non-worshiping heart into a worshiping one. The danger is that they can give a non-worshiping heart the sense of having worship. If we leave thinking, what a great song, or I love the style of that, or this, but we have not considered God and confessed our sins, I'm not sure we've worshipped together. The most important thing about our worship is not the form of it, but rather our hearts before God. Would you agree? Amen? It's also why if you think that you can live any way that you want to live during the week and then go to church on Sunday and turn on worship like it's some kind of switch, that you're completely wrong. God is not fooled by such a pretense of worship. He was not fooled by it in Isaiah's day, and He's not fooled by it today. Biblical worship always leads to a confession of sin. Psalm 23, actually it's Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, it says. It matters. At times we know that our sin needs to be confessed, but we also come, sometimes we don't know, we, with the attitude of David in Psalm 139, these words, Search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It won't matter, church, how great our music was for the day, or how wonderful the preaching was for the day if our worship does not lead us to this place. Search me, oh God. 
And the good news, of course, is that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Our sin can be forgiven and cleansed. And we'll talk about that more next week. But if you're here today and you're hearing God's call, His conviction on your life, by all means, respond to Him. This final song is not the time to put on your coats. Well, I hope you're not putting on a coat today, but gathering up your stuff or whatever you're doing. This is, this is time to confess our need for Him. It's time to prepare our hearts to leave this gathering, and we're going forth with the revelation of God that's been proclaimed to us. And our response now is to respond in confession to Him. And so I invite you as we pray and as we sing that we would be obedient to whatever the Lord is asking us to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for teaching us, Lord, showing us how it is that we're to worship You, what is pleasing to You. Lord, I pray that we're understanding with Isaiah who you are and then who we are and of our great need for you, for your grace and mercy in our lives through Jesus Christ. So if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, if there's someone here who has not been walking with you or someone who's been faking it, Lord, may your conviction come upon us all that we would be the kind of people who would not just worship you with our lips, but we would worship you with our life. We need you, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.